Section 44 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sixth Dialogue Between Horatio and Cleomenes. Horatio, now we are off the stones, pray let us lose no time. I expect a great deal of pleasure for what I am to hear further. Cleomenes, the second step to society is the danger men are in from one another for which we are beholden to that staunch principle of pride and ambition that all men are born with. Different families may endeavor to live together and be ready to join in common danger, but they are all of little use to one another when there is no common enemy to oppose. If we consider that strength, agility, and courage would, in such a state, be the most valuable qualifications, and that many families could not live long together, but some, actuated by the principle I named, would strive for superiority. This must breed quarrels, in which the most weak and fearful will, for their own safety, always join with him of whom they have the best opinion. Horatio, this would naturally divide multitudes into bands and companies that would all have their different leaders, and of which the strongest and most valiant would always swallow up the weakest and most fearful. Cleomenes, what you say agrees exactly with the accounts we have of the uncivilized nations that are still subsisting in the world, and thus men may live miserably many ages. Horatio, the very first generation that was brought up under the tuition of parents would be governable, and would not every succeeding generation grow wiser than the foregoing? Cleomenes, without doubt they would increase in knowledge and cunning, Time and experience would have the same effect upon them as it has upon others, and in the particular things to which they applied themselves, they would become as expert and ingenious as the most civilized nations, but their unruly passions and the discords occasioned by them would never suffer them to be happy. Their mutual contentions would be continually spoiling their improvements, destroying their inventions, and frustrating their designs. Horatio but would not their sufferings in time bring them acquainted with the causes of their disagreement, and would not that knowledge put them upon making of contracts not to injure one another? Cleomenes, very probably they would, but among such ill-bred and uncultivated people, no man would keep a contract longer than that interest lasted which made him submit to it. Horatio, but might not religion, the fear of an invisible cause, be made serviceable to them, as to the keeping of their contracts. Cleomenes, it might, without dispute, and would before many generations passed away, but religion could do no more among them than it does among civilized nations, where the divine vengeance is seldom trusted to only, and oaths themselves are thought to be of little service, where there is no human power to enforce the obligation and punish perjury. Horatio, but do not think that the same ambition that made a man aspire to be a leader would make him likewise desirous of being obeyed in civil matters by the numbers he led? Cleomenes, I do, and moreover that, notwithstanding this unsettled and precarious way communities would live in, after three or four generations, human nature would be looked into and begin to be understood. Leaders would find out that the more strife and discord there was amongst the people they headed, the less use they could make of them. This would put them upon various ways of curbing mankind. They would forbid killing and striking one another, the taking away by force the wives or children of others in the same community. They would invent penalties 
and very early find out that nobody ought to be a judge in his own cause, and that old men, generally speaking, knew more than young. Horatio, when once they have prohibitions and penalties, I should think all the difficulties surmounted, and I wonder why you said that thus they might live miserably for many ages. Cleomenes, there is one thing of great moment which has not been named yet, and until that comes to pass, no considerable numbers can ever be made happy. What signify the strongest contracts when we have nothing to show for them, and what dependence can we have upon oral tradition in matters that require exactness, especially whilst the language that is spoken is yet very imperfect? Verbal reports are liable to a thousand cavils and disputes that are prevented by records, which everybody knows to be unerring witnesses, and from the many attempts that are made to rest and distort the sense of even written laws, we may judge how impracticable the administration of justice must be among all societies that are destitute of them. Therefore the third and last step of society is the invention of letters. No multitudes can live peaceably without government, no government can subsist without laws, and no laws can be effectual long unless they are wrote down. The consideration of this is alone sufficient to give us a great insight into the nature of man. Horatio, I do not think so. The reason why no government can subsist without laws is because there are bad men in all multitudes, but to take patterns from them when we would judge of human nature rather than from the good ones that follow the dictates of their reason is an injustice one would not be guilty of to brute beasts, and it would be very wrong in us, for a few vicious horses, to condemn the whole species as such, without taking notice of the many fine-spirited creatures that are naturally tame and gentle. Cleomenes, at this rate I must repeat everything I have said yesterday and the day before. I thought you was convinced that it was with thought as it is with speech, and that though man was born with a capacity beyond other animals, to attain to both, yet, whilst he remained untaught and never conversed with any of his species, these characteristics were of little use to him. All men uninstructed, whilst they are let alone, will follow the impulse of their nature, without regard to others, and therefore all of them are bad that are not taught to be good. So all horses are ungovernable that are not well broken, for what we call vicious in them is, when they bite or kick, endeavor to break their halter, throw their rider, and exert themselves with all their strength to shake off the yoke and recover that liberty which nature prompts them to assert and desire. What you call natural is evidently artificial and belongs to education. No fine-spirited horse was ever tame or gentle without management. Some, perhaps, are not backed until they are four years old. But then long before that time they are handled, spoke to, and dressed. They are fed by their keepers, put under restraint, sometimes caressed, and sometimes made to start, and nothing is omitted whilst they are young to inspire them with awe and veneration to our species, and make them not only submit to it, but likewise take a pride in obeying the superior genius of man. But would you judge of the nature of horses in general, as to its fitness to be governed, take the foals of the best-bred mares and finest stallions, and turn an hundred of them loose, fillies and colts together, in a large forest, till they are seven years old, and then see how tractable they would be. Horatio, but this is never done. Cleomenes, whose fault is that? It is not at the request of the horses that they are kept from the mares, and that any of them are ever gentle or tame is entirely owing to the management of man. 
Vice proceeds from the same origin in men as it does in horses. The desire of uncontrolled liberty and impatience of restraint are not more visible in the one than they are in the other. And a man is then called vicious when, breaking the curbs of precepts and prohibitions, he wildly follows the unbridled appetites of his untaught or ill-managed nature. The complaints against this nature of ours are everywhere the same. Man would have everything he likes without considering whether he has any right to it or not, and he would do everything he has a mind to without regard to the consequence it would be of to others, at the same time that he dislikes everybody that acting from the same principle have in all their behavior not a special regard to him. Horatio, that is, in short, man naturally will not do as he would be done by. Cleomenes, that is true, and for this there is another reason in his nature. All men are partial in their judgments when they compare themselves to others. No two equals think so well of each other as both do of themselves, and where all men have an equal right to judge, there needs no greater cause of quarrel than a present among them with an inscription of Detur Digniori. Man in his anger behaves himself in the same manner as other animals, disturbing, in the pursuit of self-preservation, those they are angry with, and all of them endeavor, according as the degree of their passion is, either to destroy or cause pain and displeasure to their adversaries. That these obstacles to society are the faults, or rather properties of our nature, we may know by this, that all regulations and prohibitions that have been contrived for the temporal happiness of mankind are made exactly to tally with them, and to obviate those complaints which I said were everywhere made against mankind. The principal laws of all countries have the same tendency, and there is not one that does not point at some frailty, defect, or unfitness for society that men are naturally subject to, but all of them are plainly designed as so many remedies to cure and disappoint that natural instinct of sovereignty which teaches man to look upon everything as centering in himself, and prompts him to put in a claim to everything he can lay his hands on. This tendency and design to mend our nature for the temporal good of society is nowhere more visible than in that compendious as well as complete body of laws that was given by God himself. The Israelites, whilst they were slaves in Egypt, were governed by the laws of their masters, and as they were many degrees removed from the lowest savages, so they were yet far from being a civilized nation. It is reasonable to think that, before they received the law of God, they had regulations and agreements already established, which the Ten Commandments did not abolish, and that they must have had notions of right and wrong, and contracts among them against open violence and the invasion of property, is demonstrable. Horatio, how is it demonstrable? Cleomenes, from the Decalogue itself, all wise laws are adapted to the people that are to obey them. From the Ninth Commandment, for example, it is evident that a man's own testimony was not sufficient to be believed in his own affair, and that nobody was allowed to be a judge in his own cause. Horatio, it only forbids us to bear false witness against our neighbor. Cleomenes, that is true, and therefore the whole tenor and design of this commandment presupposes and must imply what I say. But the prohibitions of stealing, adultering, and coveting anything that belong to their neighbors are still more plainly intimating the same, and seem to be additions and amendments to supply the defects of some known regulations and contracts that had been agreed upon before. If, in this view, we behold the three commandments last hinted at, 
we shall find them to be strong evidences, not only of that instinct of sovereignty within us, which at other times I have called a domineering spirit and a principle of selfishness, but likewise of the difficulty there is to destroy, eradicate, and pull it out of the heart of man. For, from the Eighth Commandment, it appears that, though we debar ourselves from taking the things of our neighbor by force, yet there is a danger that this instinct will prompt us to get them unknown to him in a clandestine manner, and deceive us with the insinuations of an apportet habere. From the foregoing precept, it is likewise manifest that though we agree not to take away and rob a man of the woman that is his own, it is yet to be feared that if we like her, this innate principle that bids us gratify every appetite will advise us to make use of her as if she was our own, though our neighbor is at the charge of maintaining her and all the children she brings forth. The last more especially is very ample in confirming my assertion. It strikes directly at the root of the evil and lays open the real source of the mischiefs that are apprehended in the seventh and the eighth commandment. For without first actually trespassing against this, no man is in danger of breaking either of the former. This tenth commandment, moreover, insinuates very plainly, in the first place, that this instinct of ours is of great power, and a frailty hardly to be cured. In the second, that there is nothing which our neighbor can be possessed of, but, neglecting the consideration of justice and propriety, we may have a desire after it, for which reason it absolutely forbids us to covet anything that is his. The divine wisdom, well knowing the strength of this selfish principle, which obliges us continually to assume everything to ourselves, and that, when once a man heartily covets a thing, this instinct, this principle will overrule and persuade him to leave no stone unturned to compass his desires. Horatio, according to your way of expounding the commandments and making them tally so exactly with the frailties of our nature, it should follow from the ninth that all men are born with a strong appetite to forswear themselves, which I never heard before. Cleomenes, nor I neither, and I confess that the rebuke there is in this smart turn of yours is very plausible, but the censure, how specious soever it may appear, is unjust, and you shall not find the consequence you hint at if you will be pleased to distinguish between the natural appetites themselves and the various crimes which they make us commit, rather than not be obeyed. For, though we are born with no immediate appetite to forswear ourselves, yet we are born with more than one that, if never checked, may in time oblige us to forswear ourselves, or do worse, if it be possible, and they cannot be gratified without it. And the commandment you mention plainly implies that by nature we are so unreasonably attached to our interest on all emergencies that it is possible for a man to be swayed by it, not only to the visible detriment of others, as is manifest from the seventh and the eighth, but even though it should be against his own conscience. For nobody did ever knowingly bear false witness against his neighbor, but he did it for some end or other. This end, whatever it is, I call his interest. The law which forbids murder had already demonstrated to us how immensely we undervalue everything when it comes in competition with ourselves. For, though our greatest dread be destruction, and we know no other calamity equal to the dissolution of our being, yet such unequitable judges this instinct of sovereignty is able to make of us, that rather than not have our will, which we count our happiness, 
we choose to inflict this calamity on others and bring total ruin on such as we think to be obstacles to the gratification of our appetites. And this men do not only for hindrances that are present or apprehended as to come, but likewise for former offenses and things that are past redress. Horatio, by what you said last, you mean revenge, I suppose. Cleomenes, I do so. And the instinct of sovereignty which I assert to be in human nature is in nothing so glaringly conspicuous as it is in this passion, which no mere man was ever born without, and which even the most civilized as well as the most learned are seldom able to conquer. For whoever pretends to revenge himself must claim a right to a judicature within, and an authority to punish, which, being destructive to the mutual peace of all multitudes, are for that reason the first things that in every civil society are snatched away out of every man's hands, as dangerous tools, and vested in the governing part, the supreme power only. Horatio, this remark on revenge has convinced me more than anything you have said yet, that there is some such thing as a principle of sovereignty in our nature, but I cannot conceive yet why the vices of private, I mean particular persons, should be thought to belong to the whole species. Cleomenes, because everybody is liable to fall into the vices that are peculiar to his species, and it is with them as it is with distempers among creatures of different kinds. There are many ailments that horses are subject to, which are not incident to cows. There is no vice, but whoever commits it had within him before he was guilty of it, a tendency toward it, a latent cause that disposed him to it. Therefore, all lawgivers have two main points to consider at setting out. First, what things will procure happiness to the society under their care. Secondly, what passions and properties there are in man's nature that may either promote or obstruct this happiness. It is prudence to watch your fish-ponds against the insults of herns and bitterns, but the same precaution would be ridiculous against turkeys and peacocks, or any other creatures that neither love fish nor are able to catch them. Horatio, what frailty or defect is it in our nature that the first two commandments have a regard to, or, as you call it, tally with? Cleomenes, our natural blindness and ignorance of the true deity. For, though we all come into the world with an instinct toward religion that manifests itself before we come to maturity, yet the fear of an invisible cause, or invisible causes, which all men are born with, is not more universal than the uncertainty which all untaught men fluctuate in. As to the nature and properties of that cause, or those causes, there can be no greater proof of this, stroke, Horatio, I want none. The history of all ages is a sufficient witness. Cleomenes, give me leave. There can, I say, be no greater proof of this than the second commandment, which palpably points at all the absurdities and abominations which the ill-guided fear of an invisible cause had already made, and would still continue to make men commit. And in doing this, I can hardly think that anything but divine wisdom could, in so few words, have comprehended the vast extent and sum total of human extravagancies which is done in that commandment. For there is nothing so high or remote in the firmament nor so low or abject upon earth, but some men have worshipped it, or made it one way or another the object of their superstition. Horatio, stroke, crocodilon adorat pars haec, 
illa pavet Saturnam serpentibus ibin, effigia sacri nitet aurea circopithesi. A holy monkey. I own it is a reproach to our species that ever any part of it should have adored such a creature as a god. But that is the tip-top of folly that can be charged on superstition. Cleomenes, I do not think so. A monkey is still a living creature, and consequently somewhat superior to things inanimate. Horatio, I should have thought men's adoration of the sun or moon infinitely less absurd than to have seen them fall down before so vile, so ridiculous an animal. Cleomenes, those who have adored the sun and moon never questioned, but they were intelligent as well as glorious beings. But when I mentioned the word inanimate, I was thinking on what the same poet you quoted said of the veneration men paid to leeks and onions, deities they raised in their own gardens. Porum et sepe nefas violare, et frangere morsu, o sanctas genteis quibus haec nascuntur in hortis numina, stroke, but this is nothing to what has been done in America fourteen hundred years after the time of Juvenal. If the portentous worship of the Mexicans had been known in his days, he would not have thought it worth his while to take notice of the Egyptians. I have often admired at the uncommon pains those poor people must have taken to express the frightful and shocking, as well as bizarre and unutterable notions they entertained, of the superlative malice and hellish implacable nature of their vitzliputzli, to whom they sacrificed to the hearts of men, cut out whilst they were alive. The monstrous figure and labored deformity of that abominable idol are a lively representation of the direful ideas those wretches framed to themselves of an invisible overruling power, and plainly show us how horrid and execrable they thought it to be, at the same time that they paid it the highest adoration, and at the expense of human blood endeavored, with fear and trembling, if not to appease the wrath and rage of it, at least to avert, in some measure, the manifold mischiefs they apprehended from it. Horatio, nothing, I must own, can render declaiming against idolatry more seasonable than a reflection upon the second commandment. But as what you have been saying required no great attention, I have been thinking of something else." Thinking on the purport of the third commandment furnishes me with an objection, and I think a strong one, to what you have affirmed about all laws in general, and the Decalogue in particular. You know I urged that it was wrong to ascribe the faults of bad men to human nature in general. Cleomenes, I do, and I thought I had answered you. Horatio, let me try only once more. Which of the two, pray, do you think profane swearing to proceed from? a frailty in our nature, or an ill custom generally contracted by keeping of bad company? Cleomenes, certainly the latter. Horatio, then it is evident to me that this law is leveled at the bad men only that are guilty of the vice forbid in it, and not any frailty belonging to human nature in general. Cleomenes, I believe you mistake the design of this law, and I am of opinion that it has a much higher aim than you seem to imagine. You remember my saying that reverence to authority was necessary to make human creatures governable, Horatio, very well, and that reverence was a compound of fear, love, and esteem. Cleomenes, now let us take a view of what is done in the Decalogue. In the short preamble to it, 
expressly made that the Israelites should know who it was that spoke to them, God manifests himself to those whom he had chosen for his people, by a most remarkable instance of his own great power and their strong obligation to him, in a fact that none of them could be ignorant of. There is a plainness and grandeur withal in this sentence, than which nothing can be more truly sublime or majestic, and I defy the learned world to show me another as comprehensive and of equal weight and dignity that so fully executes its purpose and answers its design with the same simplicity of words. In that part of the second commandment, which contains the motives and inducements why men should obey the divine laws, are set forth in the most emphatical manner, first, God's wrath on those that hate him, and the continuance of it on their posterity, secondly, the wide extent of his mercy to those who love him and keep his commandments. If we duly consider these passages, we shall find that fear as well as love and the highest esteem are plainly and distinctly inculcated in them, and that the best method is made use of there to inspire men with a deep sense of the three ingredients that make up the compound of reverence. The reason is plain. If people were to be governed by that body of laws, nothing was more necessary to enforce their obedience to them than their awful regard and utmost veneration to him, at whose command they were to keep them, and to whom they were accountable for the breaking of them. Horatio, what answer is all this to my objection? Cleomenes, have a moment's patience, I am coming to it. Mankind are naturally fickle, and delight in change and variety. They seldom retain long the same impression of things they received at first, when they were new to them, and they are apt to undervalue, if not despise the best, when they grow common. I am of opinion that the third commandment points at this frailty, this want of steadiness in our nature, the ill consequences of which, in our duty to the Creator, could not be better prevented than by a strict observance of this law, in never making use of his name, but in the most solemn manner, on necessary occasions, and in matters of high importance." As in the foregoing part of the Decalogue, care had already been taken by the strongest motives to create and attract reverence, so nothing could be more wisely adapted to strengthen and make it everlasting than the contents of this law. For as too much familiarity breeds contempt, so our highest regard due to what is most sacred cannot be kept up better than by a quite contrary practice. Horatio, I am answered. Cleomenes, what weight reverence is thought to be of to procure obedience, we may learn from the same body of laws in another commandment. Children have no opportunity of learning their duty but from their parents and those who act by their authority or in their stead. Therefore it was requisite that men should not only stand in great dread of the law of God, but likewise have great reverence for those who first inculcated it and communicated to them that this was the law of God. Horatio, but you said that the reverence of children to parents was a natural consequence of what they first experienced from the latter. Cleomenes, you think there was no occasion for this law, if man would do what is commanded in it of his own accord. But I desire you would consider that though the reverence of children to parents is a natural consequence, partly of the benefits and chastisements they receive from them, and partly of the great opinion they form of the superior capacity they observe in them. Experience teaches us that this reverence may be overruled by stronger passions, 
and therefore it being of the highest moment to all governments and sociableness itself, God thought fit to fortify and strengthen it in us by a particular command of his own, and, moreover, to encourage it by the promise of a reward for the keeping of it. It is our parents that first cure us of our natural wildness and break in us the spirit of independency we are all born with. It is to them we owe the first rudiments of our submission, and to the honor and deference which children pay to parents, all societies are obliged for the principle of human obedience. The instinct of sovereignty in our nature, and the waywardness of infants, which is the consequence of it, discover themselves with the least glimmering of our understanding, and before children that have been most neglected, and the least taught, are always the most stubborn and obstinate. And none are more unruly, and fonder of following their own will, than those that are least capable of governing themselves. Horatio, then this commandment you think not obligatory, when we come to years of maturity. Cleomenes, far from it, for though the benefit politically intended by this law be chiefly received by us, whilst we are under age and the tuition of parents, yet, for that very reason, ought the duty commanded in it never to cease. We are fond of imitating our superiors from our cradle, and whilst this honor and reverence to parents continue to be paid by their children when they are grown men and women, and act for themselves, the example is of singular use to all minors, in teaching them their duty, and not to refuse what they see others, that are older and wiser, comply with by choice. For, by this means, as their understanding increases, this duty, by degrees, becomes a fashion, which at last their pride will not suffer them to neglect. Horatio, what you last said is certainly the reason that among fashionable people even the most vicious and wicked do outward homage and pay respect to parents, at least before the world, though they act against, and in their hearts hate them. Cleomenes, here is another instance to convince us that good manners are not inconsistent with wickedness, and that men may be strict observers of decorums and take pains to seem well-bred, and at the same time have no regard to the laws of God, and live in contempt of religion, and therefore to procure an outward compliance with this fifth commandment, no lecture can be of such force, nor any instruction so edifying to youth among the modest sort of people as the sight of a strong and vigorous, as well as polite and well-dressed man, in a dispute giving way and submitting to a decrepit parent. Horatio, but do you imagine that all the divine laws, even those that seem only to relate to God himself, his power and glory, and our obedience to his will, abstract from any consideration of our neighbor, had likewise a regard to the good of society, and the temporal happiness of his people? Cleomenes, there is no doubt of that. Witness the keeping of the Sabbath. Horatio, we have seen that very handsomely proved in one of the spectators. Cleomenes, but the usefulness of it in human affairs is of far greater moment than that which the author of that paper chiefly takes notice of. Of all the difficulties that mankind have labored under in completing society, nothing has been more puzzling or perplexing than the division of time, our annual course round the sun, not answering exactly any number of complete days or hours, has been the occasion of immense study and labor, and nothing has more racked the brain of man than the adjusting the year to prevent the confusion of seasons. But even when the year was divided into lunar months, 
the computation of time must have been impracticable among the common people. To remember twenty-nine or thirty days where feasts are irregular and all other days show alike must have been a great burden to the memory and caused a continual confusion among the ignorant, whereas a short period soon returning is easily remembered and one fixed day in seven so remarkably distinguished from the rest must rub up the memory of the most unthinking. Horatio, I believe that the Sabbath is a considerable help in the computation of time, and of greater use in human affairs than can be easily imagined by those who never knew the want of it. Cleomenes, but what is most remarkable in this fourth commandment is God's revealing himself to his people, and acquainting an infant nation with a truth which the rest of the world remained ignorant of for many ages. Men were soon made sensible of the sun's power, observed every meteor in the sky, and suspected the influence of the moon and other stars. But it was a long time, and man was far advanced in sublime notions, before the light of nature could raise mortal thoughts to the contemplation of an infinite being that is the author of the whole. Horatio, you have discanted on this sufficiently when you spoke of Moses. Pray let us proceed to the further establishment of society. I am satisfied that the third step towards it is the invention of letters, that without them no laws can be long effectual, and that the principal laws of all countries are remedies against human frailties. I mean that they are designed as antidotes to prevent the ill consequences of some properties inseparable from our nature, which yet in themselves, without management or restraint, are obstructive and pernicious to society. I am persuaded likewise that these frailties are palpably pointed at in the Decalogue, that it was wrote with great wisdom, and that there is not one commandment in it that is not a regard to the temporal good of society as well as matters of high moment. Cleomenes, these are the things indeed that I have endeavored to prove, and now all the great difficulties and chief obstructions that can hinder a multitude from being formed into a body politic are removed. When once men come to be governed by written laws, all the rest comes on apace. Now property and safety of life and limb may be secured. This naturally will forward the love of peace and make it spread. No number of men, when once they enjoy quiet, and no man needs to fear his neighbor, will be long without learning to divide and subdivide their labor. Horatio, I do not understand you. Cleomenes, man, as I have hinted before, naturally loves to imitate what he sees others do, which is the reason that savage people all do the same thing. This hinders them from meliorating their condition, though they are always wishing for it. But if one will wholly apply himself to the making of bows and arrows, whilst another provides food, a third builds huts, a fourth makes garments, and a fifth utensils, they not only become useful to one another, but the callings and employments themselves will in the same number of years receive much greater improvements than if all had been promiscuously followed by every one of the five. Horatio, I believe you are perfectly right there, and the truth of what you say is in nothing so conspicuous as it is in watchmaking, which has come to a higher degree of perfection than it would have been arrived at yet if the whole had always remained the employment of one person. And I am persuaded that even the plenty we have of clocks and watches, as well as the exactness and beauty they may be made of, are chiefly owing to the division that has been made of that art into many branches. 
Cleomenes, the use of letters must likewise very much improve speech itself, which before that time cannot but be very barren and precarious. Horatio, I am glad to hear you mention speech again. I would not interrupt you when you named it once before. Pray, what language did your wild couple speak when they first met? Cleomenes, from what I have said already, it is evident that they could have had none at all, at least that is my opinion. Horatio, then wild people must have an instinct to understand one another, which they lose when they are civilized. Cleomenes, I am persuaded that nature has made all animals of the same kind, in their mutual commerce, intelligible to one another, as far as is requisite for the preservation of themselves and their species. And as to my wild couple, as you call them, I believe there would be a very good understanding before many sounds pass between them. It is not without some difficulty that a man born in society can form an idea of such savages and their condition, and unless he has used himself to abstract thinking, he can hardly represent to himself such a state of simplicity in which man can have so few desires and no appetites roving beyond the immediate call of untaught nature. To me it seems very plain that such a couple would not only be destitute of language, but likewise never find out, or imagine that they stood in need of any, or that the want of it was any real inconvenience to them. Horatio, why do you think so? Cleomenes, because it is impossible that any creatures should know the want of what it can have no idea of. I believe, moreover, that if savages, after they are grown men and women, should hear others speak, be made acquainted with the usefulness of speech, and consequently become sensible of the want of it in themselves, their inclination to learn it would be as inconsiderable as their capacity, and if they should attempt it, they would find it an immense labor, a thing not to be surmounted, because the suppleness and flexibility in the organs of speech that children are endued with, and which I have often hinted at, would be lost in them, and they might learn to play masterly upon the violin, or any other the most difficult musical instrument, before they could take any tolerable proficiency in speaking." Horatio. Brutes make several distinct sounds to express different passions by, as, for example, anguish and great danger, dogs of all sorts express with another noise than they do rage and anger, and the whole species expresses grief by howling. Cleomenes. This is no argument to make us believe that nature has endued man with speech. There are innumerable other privileges and instincts which some brutes enjoy, and men are destitute of. Chickens run about as soon as they are hatched, and most quadrupeds can walk without help as soon as they are brought forth. If ever language came by instinct, the people that spoke it must have known every individual word in it, and a man in the wild state of nature would have no occasion for a thousandth part of the most barren language that ever had a name. When a man's knowledge is confined within a narrow compass, and he has nothing to obey but the simple dictates of nature, the want of speech is easily supplied by dumb signs, and it is more natural to untaught men to express themselves by gestures than by sounds. But we are all born with the capacity of making ourselves understood beyond other animals without speech, to express grief, joy, love, wonder, and fear. There are certain tokens that are common to the whole species. Who doubts that the crying of children was given them by nature, to call assistance and raise pity, which latter it does so unaccountably beyond any other sound. Horatio, in mothers and nurses, you mean. 
Cleomenes, I mean in the generality of human creatures. Will you allow me that warlike music generally rouses and supports the spirits and keeps them from sinking? Horatio, I believe I must. Cleomenes, then I will engage that the crying, I mean the vagitus, of helpless infants will stir up compassion in the generality of our species, that are within the hearing of it, with much greater certainty than drums and trumpets will dissipate and chase away fear in those they are applied to. Weeping, laughing, smiling, frowning, sighing, exclaiming, we spoke of before. How universal, as well as copious, is the language of the eyes, by the help of which the remotest nations understand one another at first sight, taught or untaught, in the weightiest temporal concern that belongs to the species. And in that language our wild couple would at their first meeting intelligibly say more to one another without guile, than any civilized pair would dare to name without blushing. Horatio, a man without doubt may be as impudent with his eyes as he can be with his tongue. Cleomenes, all such looks, therefore, and several motions that are natural and carefully avoided among polite people upon no other account than that they are too significant. It is for the same reason that stretching ourselves before others whilst we are yawning is an absolute breach of good manners, especially in mixed company of both sexes. As it is indecent to display any of these tokens, so it is unfashionable to take notice of or seem to understand them. This disuse and neglect of them is the cause that whenever they happen to be made, either through ignorance or willful rudeness, many of them are lost and not really understood by the beau monde, that would be very plain to savages without language, who could have no other means of conversing than by signs and motions. Horatio, but if the old stock would never either be able or willing to acquire speech, it is possible they could teach it their children. Then which way could any language ever come into the world from two savages? Cleomenes, by slow degrees, as all other arts and sciences have done, and length of time, agriculture, physic, astronomy, architecture, painting, etc., from what we see in children that are backward with their tongues, we have reason to think that a wild pair would make themselves intelligible to each other by signs and gestures, before they would attempt it by sounds. But when they live together for many years, it is very probable that for the things they were most conversant with, they would find out sounds. To stir up in each other the ideas of such things when they were out of sight, these sounds they would communicate to their young ones, and the longer they lived together, the greater variety of sounds they would invent, as well for actions as the things themselves, they would find that the volubility of tongue and flexibility of voice were much greater in their young ones than they could remember it ever to have been in themselves. It is impossible, but some of these young ones would either by accident or design make use of this superior aptitude of the organs at one time or other, which every generation would still improve upon, and this must have been the origin of all languages, and speech itself, that were not taught by inspiration. I believe, moreover, that after language, I mean such as is of human invention, was come to a great degree of perfection, and even when people had distinct words for every action in life, as well as everything they meddled or conversed with, signs and gestures still continued to be made for a great while, to accompany speech, because both are intended for the same purpose. Horatio, the design of speech is to make our thoughts known to others. Cleomenes, I do not think so. 
Horatio, what? Do not men speak to be understood? Cleomenes, in one sense they do. But there is a double meaning in those words, which I believe you did not intend. If by man speaking to be understood you mean that when men speak, they desire that the purport of the sounds they utter should be known and apprehended by others, I answer in the affirmative. But if you mean by it that men speak in order that their thoughts may be known, and their sentiments laid open and seen through by others, which likewise may be meant by speaking to be understood, I answer in the negative. The first sign or sound that man ever made, born of a woman, was made in behalf and intended for the use of him who made it. And I am of opinion that the first design of speech was to persuade others, either to give credit to what the speaking person would have them believe, or else to act or suffer such things as he would compel them to act or suffer, if they were entirely in his power. End of section 44